0: This time we've had uh, an announcement, you might say, but to something that is uh, really important, and this is time. Last week, we sort of inaugurated a new rhythm in our church. We, we acknowledged as a body that we were at the back end of the New Year Resolution Hump, meaning that time of the year when everybody's excited and really thinking about what they're going to do. All our calendars are mapped out. We've got our, you know, post-it notes and reminders on our phones. The, the New Year Resolution season is always interesting in America because they say like after about seven days, most of the resolutions are pretty much put to the curb. And so in light of that, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we spent some time talking about one of the things that can actually help us accomplish our resolutions, particularly those that, that, are, that regard our faith, how we love God well. And I thought it would be good to talk about time. Like, what does the Bible say about time? What does the Bible say about making the most of every moment in our lives? Not just seeing, you know, our lives as a series of disconnected events or Uh, uh, always having this sort of crazy sense of urgency but really getting to the place where we think about God having an incredible purpose for our moments every single one of them Now, with that in mind I want to give you a statistic any of you know how many minutes are in a day? nobody, that's so lame, anybody? 1,000, that's why I'm here, you need me 1,440 minutes, that's how many minutes are in a day Okay. and what's interesting is depending on who you're talking to Some people will really have 1,440 minutes and not be stressed at all. They'll get a bunch of stuff done, have great relationships, things are good. But you could talk to some people who have 1,444 minutes and they act like they only have 14 minutes and their lives are nothing but stressed. Everything is urgent and they can't seem to get a grip on this. And so I want to sort of level the playing field by saying every human, every one of us has the same amount of time. And the point of what we've been talking about and will be talking about is what we decide to do with those minutes, knowingly or unknowingly, is shaped by what we value most in life. This is where we, where we start to pause the minutes, you might say. And so Jesus puts this idea this way in Matthew. He says, what we do externally, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, here, but what we do externally, what we do with our time, our actions, our thoughts, and our deeds, it reveals the internal values of your heart, my heart. What I do is largely based on what I value, and the same is true for you. And so make no mistake about it, in our culture, our time is just as precious a commodity as our money, especially in the American Western mind. We guard it and protect it. We privatize it at times. We might even get a little frustrated when somebody asks us to use some of it on their behalf. And what I want to say today as we introduce this idea, continuing to make the, moment of, make the most of every moment, is that there is a deep and intrinsic gospel correlation between what you spend your time doing and what your heart worships. Now, much like money, if you want to know what you worship in the depths of your heart, you just have to look at what you do with your money or your time. They're usually good indicators for us. And the main drive of this series is taken from Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. I want to recap very briefly what we talked about last week. It was a call, Paul tells in Ephesians, challenges us to regularly examine what we do with our time in light of Jesus' wisdom. So if we do not follow that instruction, which we addressed in full last week, that message is online. If you haven't heard it, I'd encourage you to listen to it. What happens is we, we can fall into a very convenient trap, like a justification trap, where we say things like, you know, there are just so many demands on my time that I find it difficult or just can't spend time with God. I can't uh, find the time to love my brother and sister in Jesus. I can't serve my neighbor. Remember, we are a Christian church. So when I say these things here, I want to talk about time from the perspective of, of God, of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to be very narrow in this application. I want to talk about what it means to make the most of every moment based on God's wisdom, Jesus' wisdom. That was the purpose of what we spoke about last week. And when we talk about this, there's a rubber-meets-the-road reality. There's a lot of folks who, who use the demands of their lives to stop them from loving God well, or serving their neighbor, or caring for their brother and sister in Jesus. What happens is most people that, that have this complex, that claim to not have enough time to really love and follow God, They seldom have this problem because of time. And please hear me, I'm not saying that our lives cannot be hectic or crazy. I just want you to know that what you value is what you will make time for. And so it's worth asking, if if the Lord is a low priority on our totem pole, then it's usually due to something more, more significant. It's not just a matter of how many minutes we have. It's actually him being a very low priority in our lives. And so what this means is the root of this, the root of time, problems, successes with it, Is an issue of worship because what we worship dictates what we do with our lives and here's why I think this is a valid point to make scripture teaches us that our our internal heart priorities deeply drive what we externally worship in life whatever you worship is what you will ultimately orient your life around this is what worship is it's sort of what you orbit around in life and so if you want to know what your heart worships one of the best ways to identify that is to think about how you spend the day how you spend a week how you spend a month of your life. You might even want to take this a step further. In years past and in my own life, I have kind of created what I call a time journal. When I feel like life redlining a little bit, I find it very helpful to sit down, your computer, a piece of paper, however you take notes at your call, and actually write, log your day. Like, look at what you're doing. Some of this gives us a great kind of insight into life. I shared with you last week that the average American spends now four hours on social media day, media in general. And so you can see how maybe some people are feeling really busy in life, but maybe part of it is because what we're investing our time in, nothing against social media, may- maybe four hours of it a day, I'm against that. What we're spending our time on actually starts to create this stress problem. And so ask yourself when it comes to time, it's well worth asking. Is God a casual acquaintance you get involved with on occasion? Or is he a person who is interwoven into every fabric of your life? Is he weighing in on every area of your life? Because how you answer this will directly affect how you understand and spend your time. And that was the premise of what we studied last week, Matthew six thirty three. We just read it again. There Jesus taught us the way to make the most of every moment in our lives is to really figure out what it means to put God's kingdom first in every area of our life. What does it mean to start seeing life with, with a priority structure, of having first things first, and then letting everything else we do be shaped and influenced by that spiritual truth. And what he said was if we exclude his wisdom which is readily available to us from our time when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to our work, when it comes to how we treat our neighbors we will likely in an attempt to be more efficient with time which is not the premise of these passages. Efficiency is not what God is concerned with here although that matters. What we're talking about here is what it means to be wise. What are we efficient in is the bigger question. If we're not mindful of that question, what will happen is we will probably just reshuffle the time deck of our lives and end up at the same place, never-ending urgency. Ending up at the same place where time isn't serving us, which is why God has given it to us. We are serving it. It becomes a new God in our life. And we were reminded that the key to dealing with time demands is not efficiency. It's regularly asking God if you're using your time well and in a way that honors Him, causes you to flourish. That's what time should do and serves others. So I want to take that idea and dig a little deeper today based on Matthew six thirty-three and certainly the foundational principle we read in Ephesians 5. Because putting God's kingdom first in our lives isn't the place most of us start life at. I've told you before, I became a Christian at 23. God's kingdom was not a priority in my life for half of my life. And then it took several years in my life for me to understand that this was an idea God wanted me to live my life by. And so for some of us, what happens is this is a, this is a lofty idea and I'm not denying that. But I am saying with God's presence, his grace, community, and support, these lofty ideas can actually be realities we live our life by. And this is important. Putting God's kingdom first is not where we start. It is a place where we arrive. And we arrive there by letting Jesus be the Lord of our time for a season. And this leads me really to the only thing I want to share with you this morning. I have one truth I want to share with you. Putting God's kingdom first in your life naturally leads to glorifying God in every moment of your life. And make no mistake about it, glorifying God is really a a synonym for making the most of every moment. And here's why I say that. God's glory is a a significant statement in the Bible. It's what we would consider a pretty heavy theological idea. And because of that, those words in the Christian faith, they they need to be be defined before we move forward. I want to make sure we're sort of on the same playing ground when we talk about living for the glory of God. Because by living for the glory of God, we are making the most of every moment in our lives. And so glory, I've spoken about glory before in here. This is a, an interesting word in our culture. It's used in all kinds of applications. Most recently, if you watched the Super Bowl last week, it's funny watching how people talk about that, that win, the Eagles upsetting the Patriots, as a glorious win. It's considered to be something weighty and powerful. You know, it sort of captivates the mind and the heart for a season. I have friends in Philadelphia, and I think they are still re-watching that game on their uh directv dvrs it's ridiculous like they got go to go back to work it was crazy watching how much energy revolved around that game glorious to them totally robbed their mind and their heart and i mean in a good way something magnificent glorious is a word that we've had some interesting interactions with here regarding our ecology right we've had some pretty beautiful sunsets recently we had some pretty awesome stuff going with the moon some of you watched, you know elon musk put a tesla in orbit Pretty powerful things, right? Glorious. They, you sort of look at that stuff and you think like, man, that's an amazing thing to see. We use this word to talk about food, right? Glorious dish, tasty, pretty awesome. My uncle owns a restaurant in New Smyrna and I ate there Friday night with my wife. It's a pre-Valentine's uh, date because I take her out every week, every, every day for Valentine's. I'm a great example for that. Please follow my lead. Ask her. She'll <laughs> affirm every word of that. We went out to eat at my uncle's restaurant. I had duck, and it was awesome, and I took a picture of it. I wanted to remember that moment, right? This is the idea of of glory. It's sort of something that that causes us to reorient life for a season. My favorite example of glory, for those of you that know me, I'm a pretty big history buff. There was this great movie that came out in the 1970s. It was a film called Patton, and if you're into any kind of military history, this is a great movie to watch. It's an old-school movie, but a great one. We got at least one military buff with me right here. (laughs) I think that was John. I'm going to take you out to lunch. It tells this story, right, of a pretty famous but controversial American general named George Patton. And what he was really well known for was his conquest on the battlefield, but he was also a glory hog. This is like undeniable. And he led the U.S. Third Army in World War II. Extremely controversial, but super successful military commander who would regularly describe war as glorious. And this theme in his life is so prevalent that it's, it's all throughout the film, but they close the film with this 1 minute and 20 second like, dialogue that just really it defines the whole, the whole of his life. And the closing scene of the film shows him. It's after the war is over, he's kind of walking his dog. He's got a, you know, a bull terrier, a perfect, perfect dog for a general. And he is walking this dog down what looks like a mountainous valley. And there's a voiceover in his head. It's actually him speaking to himself as he's walking. Now a completely celebrated and famous American general. And the voiceover highlights a very true historical fact, especially if you understand biblical or Roman history. And remember, Rome is a pretty, pretty powerful force in the first century world in Scripture. There's lots of stuff going on between Rome and the people of God. And what he says in his head is in ancient Rome, he relives this idea. That heroes, when they came home from battle, which is what he just did, they were honored, like really celebrated. The whole city would shut down, and they would throw these victory parades that touted their glorious feats on the battlefield. They were celebrating what these folks did for the empire. This is what was happening from the outside looking in. However, always accompanying the hero, the celebrated general, was a slave in the back of the chariot who was holding a gold crown over their head, and they would whisper constantly this warning in their ear that glory is fleeting. And the idea was that while all of this mass appeal, all of this energy, all of this glory, this this fame and kind of celebrityism was in front of them, there was a small peasant behind them, somebody that wasn't even valued in the culture, reminding them that don't get too wrapped up in this because the parade is going to be over soon. And eventually this glory will fade away. And who knows, you might not even live to make the next parade. And the message the scene communicated was a pretty profound one. A guy that spent his whole life around the glory of war was reminding himself to be careful about what you choose to glorify in life. Because sometimes, and in some cases, many, many times, the things people choose to glorify are temporal. And they will not fulfill you like you want, or they will not fulfill you for the kind of longevity you want. It might you know, puff you up for a season, fill you up for a season, but they, it will not provide you the long-term meaning, purpose, and significance you want in life. Some glories are even worse than that. They are just downright treacherous, especially when it comes to what we do with our time. Some glories will harm us. It can lead to excessive pride. We can, we can orient life around ourselves and get to the place where we don't value people or care for them. You know, that's a narcissism complex. That's a glory that will hurt us. And there are slews of others I can share with you. My point being, as wide a range as this word has in the world we live in, in scripture, the glory of God is, is really a very particular thing. In Scripture, it's it's used to describe every moment. It's used to describe God's significance in every moment of your life and mine. That is what glorifying God means. And so in the past, I've given you a very practical definition of glory. And what I say is, it's when you get to this place in your life where something matters so much to you, whatever it is, it matters so much to you that you begin to reorient your whole life around it. And I use this kind of planetary analogy, that what happens is, You find a sun, S-U-N in life And the stars of your life begin to orbit around it This can be when we first start dating our spouses This can be as we raise children It can be a passion for our vocation Whatever it is, there are good glories in that Lowercase g But there can be really problematic realities If those become the things that matter most in life Because what happens is, is To take glory here means to rob it from someplace else And I've said before, it's not worth changing the world in your vocation At the expense of your family Tons of kind of contrast points we can talk about there and my point here is that while many things in life can can garner for our glory There are many things in life. Keep in mind. We give glory to you know glory isn't taken from us It's given we voluntarily voluntarily show it to something But the Christian there's only one approved option and in the Bible that's God and That is why the Christian faith places such a great emphasis on us really making a genuine decision to follow Jesus To make him the center of our lives we're not forced into that but there is this desire when jesus says follow me that we actually do that and so glory is funny because in some senses it actually just describes a profound relationship with god that is what glorifying god is so profound that it starts to change us at the core of our being it's not necessarily even about fame although i guess it can be at times it's actually about having such a meaningful interaction with god that we reorient life around him. And there's a great example of this in Exodus 33:18. 18. I won't have the verse behind me, but I just want to share with you the story. If you're an Old Testament buff, you'll know what I'm about to say. It's in Exodus 33 where Moses literally literally says, God, show me your glory. Like we sang songs about that in you know, youth group 20 years ago. Show me your glory, third day. The idea was show me your glory. Then you had a lot of Christians saying, what, is, what does that mean for God to show me his glory? Well, there's a clear answer here. In Exodus 33, God obliges Moses' request to show him his glory. He doesn't move mountains. He doesn't part the Red Sea at that point. He doesn't do anything that we might expect to be like magnificent, at least by human standards. What he does is he shows himself to Moses. He says, listen, you want to see my glory? You want to, you want to know what it means to glorify me? Then what I'm going to do is let you experience me in a meaningful and significant way. I'm going to let you have an interaction with me that is so powerful that you're going to reorient your whole life around me, around loving and serving me. So when Moses says, show me your glory, God says, here I am. That's my glory, me. Look at me. Look at my love for you. Look at my care for you. And obviously, we're beyond Moses in the sense that we have Jesus to look at. And so even though God's glory often carries with it this, this blurry feel, in Christianity, there is nothing blurry about it at all. To live for God's glory means through the eyes of faith and reason. You've used, you've used your heart and your head, now shaping your hands. You've gotten to this place where you've had such an interaction with God. It's been so meaningful to you that you've chosen to reorient your life around him. And the natural result of this, maybe you're saying, why are we talking about time, uh, glory, when we're speaking about time? Because you'll never actually give God your time. You'll never let him shape your time. If you're glorifying things that are not God, they are going to demand your time. The natural result of actually honoring God, putting the first things first in life, is that you begin to lay down somewhat voluntarily, maybe even completely voluntarily. When God shows you these things, you lay down the pursuit of fading glories in order to pursue unfading glory. You figure out where permanency is in glory. So it's a powerful passage in Exodus, but there's a bit of a reverse warning for us. On one hand, it tells us if we live for the glory of God, we'll be able to clearly see God and know his will in every area of our life, including time. And by knowing his will, I simply mean God will speak into your time and start sharing with you through people that love you, his word, prayer time. He'll start sharing with you the ways that life needs to be reformed. On the contrary, though, on the other hand, there's a warning in that passage. If you live for the glory of things that are not God, you'll be blinded to the glory of God in your life and with your time. It's just natural to say that when we pursue God, We will glorify him with time and that will create a priority structure that leads to flourishing. However, if we're glorifying things that are not God as if they are God, it's pretty fair to say on the inverse, the opposite might happen. And I give you an example of this from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 42 through 43. Something really interesting happens here. I want to read it to you. It'll be behind me. You know, Jesus is going about his business and he's dealing with the typical adversaries. He's at the synagogue. He's got the Pharisees arguing with him. It's a normal day of business for Jesus. But something is pointed out here that is really important when it comes to our glory or who we give it to. John tells us this, yet at the same time, like in the midst of people really believing and following Jesus, glorifying him, you might even say, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, because of this external pressure, They would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear. They would be put out of the synagogue. And then John tells us pretty pointedly, for they loved human glory more than the glory of God. They loved something more than God. And these are the people who are claiming to lead the kingdom of God. Now, if you have young kids, you know we parents often devise clever games to entertain them when we're driving around. Uh, if, if you don't do this, then you know that your kids will probably entertain themselves by pulling each other's hair, yelling at each other, rolling the windows up and down. This just happened in a three-minute drive to church this morning in my, in my car, okay? And then they start to ask a million questions like, you know, why do bats hang upside down and the gumbo machines work? Uh, why are catfish called catfish if they're fish and not cats? They start asking you these things. And so you have to figure out like how to manage time in the car. And this week, it was sort of sweet. I went fishing with my son in Palm Coast Thursday night, and we had a a, a drive up there and a drive back. And he did something that really sort of sparked a really precious memory I had with him. He's almost 12 now, when he was eight, seven or eight, really, in those two years. And it's really applicable to what I'm talking about here, so hang on with me for a moment. Uh, When he was little, my son is obsessed with cars, and he has always had this affinity for Mustangs. It's kind of funny. When he was smaller, when we would drive around, We figured out a way to pass the time. We played this game called Mustang, uh, and he would just yell out when he saw a Mustang. And you know, if you live in Florida, uh, I did this on Friday because my son reminded me this of Thursday. From my house to BJ's, the shopping center, I counted six Mustangs, and I only live like three minutes from BJ's. That's just one way. They're everywhere. And so there's a lot of Mustangs, and it takes up a lot of time. And what I noticed was when we, we saw a Mustang Thursday night and he pointed it out and it made me remember this, it was kind of cool. And I got to thinking about this. So early on in the game, when my son started playing this with me, I noticed that he would point out lots of cars because he is into cars. Stuff that he liked. But over time, he got to this point where the Mustang was the only thing he saw. And it wasn't as if he wasn't seeing other cars. It was as, it was as if he was, it wasn't you know, blinded to the endless numbers of vehicles that were around him what happened was is he was so fixated on this one car that he just stopped paying attention to the other cars it wasn't that he could not see them it was just that the Mustang had earned a a place of significance in his heart and still does to this day he didn't want to see other cars there's sort of an interesting parallel here when we talk about what we glorify you have this passage in John where men and women who proclaim a love for God start glorifying something that isn't God there's an attention issue here and the parallel in that story both the one in John and the one I'm sharing with you, is that when it comes to our spiritual lives, when, when we make things that are not God as weighty and significant in our lives as God is supposed to be, we tend to become so focused on them that we can easily and sometimes unknowingly, they, they can blind us. They can cause us to live for moments that might not even be of God. It's sort of a benevolent omission. Many cars are around us, but there's only one thing I see. And because of that, I'm blinded to the beauty of other things, right? Now, that's an innocent child story. But what happens in John is actually not innocent at all. It drives a wedge in between those who claim to love God and God. It's a problem in John. John tells us many of the Pharisees, they so desired the glory of people, the glory of prestige and status, that they denied Jesus. They had a different orbit that they were working with. They were looking at a different sun. And perhaps even worse, he tells us, some leaders secretly believed in Jesus but wouldn't follow him publicly because they were afraid of losing their status in the temple that's what the problem was they did not want to lose their badges this would be like the equivalent of us being afraid of what would happen if if people knew we were Christians in our natural circles of influence living like this is a bit questionable it's it's a questionable form of belief for sure but this behavior is driven by a glory problem what we're reading about in John is a behavior shaped by glory they want something more than God's glory And this incident is a real case study in how we all want to be accepted and validated by something or someone in life. And unfortunately, we are very prone to seek that kind of acceptance in places that can do more damage to our lives than good, especially if we're sort of unchecked in our thought and spirituality. In this case, these men trade the temporal glory of religious titles for the eternal glory of their God. And there's something to take away from this, a real application for us. When you and I live for the glory of something that isn't God, like it is God, it will rob us of the fullness of life God desires you to have and and me to have. It It will rob us from the second promise of having time in order, flourishing. We will be robbed of the abundance God wants us to experience in life, the fullness of life. And I want to give you two examples here. The first comes directly from John. Take, for example, living for the glory of other people. That's exactly what is being pointed out in the Gospel of John. To some degree, that narrative should make a great deal of emotional sense to us because God has made us in his image. And one of the expressions of his image in our lives is that we are designed to have and be in healthy relationships with people. This is why community is such a strong value for us. This can really be seen in the dynamic relationship that God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit have. The three are one and the one are three. They love each other and care for each other. They are in real community with each other. And they're doing pretty amazing things in the world because of that. It is without question the greatest example of healthy relationship the world has ever seen. And this is why Jesus cries out in anguish on the cross. As we sort of begin to look to the cross now through the season of Lent and Easter, he's screaming on the cross because he feels as if God has forsaken him. This is the first time ever that the weight of sin has fractured the relationship that cosmic unity they've had he bears our sin and the consequence of that is that God can't look at him at that moment and it grieves him to the point that he's not lamenting about the pain of the cross he's lamenting about the absence of his father in his life at that moment and there's something pretty important that we can learn from this no one it's a glory shaper no one wants to be rejected in life and when it happens it's extremely painful because God's design for us is that we not live in rejection. It's that we ultimately have this relationship need met by being in healthy relationships, first and foremost with him and then other people. We have naturally been designed to desire acceptance. We have been designed to be approved and affirmed. And the very relationships that God gives us, right this this beautiful relational truth, he gives this us so that we can to us so we can bless each other and grow in him, what happens is when when that becomes a glory pursuit, when the most important thing in life becomes being approved by others, being affirmed by others, to the point where we don't listen to our Father in heaven anymore, we don't hear his approval or affirmation in our life, what happens is we make a glory swap. We start to value those thoughts and ideas. We start to glorify them above our love for God and God's love for us. And when you ultimately live for the glory and approval of others like this in your life, you are likely going to get in trouble with your time this is a time killer right here because you're seeking a form of ultimate approval that only a good God can give you from a flawed person and flawed means all of us I'm not pointing the flawed out I'm saying we all have problems and challenges in life we're not like God in this way we're not perfect in the way we manage our time or treat people we can be noble and good in those things but at some point we have to recognize that responsibility is too much for us to put on somebody or to ask of somebody If you're the type of person who really lives to please other people, it's very common to see some of those people being taken advantage of in life. Maybe it's a boss who cares little about you. You're a utility. You just got to get the job done, and what happens to your family is inconsequential as long as the job gets done. Maybe it's a family member, a sibling, a parent, a child, who no matter how much you give to them and serve them, it is just never, ever, ever enough. They always need more of you, more of your time, more of fill in the blank. Maybe this is a demand we place on ourselves because we can be brutal on ourselves at times in life. We are the ones placing demands on us that can never be satisfied. We are the person sort of bludgeoning the hope and the joy out of our lives because we have such a, a negative or unrealistic view and expectation of our own lives. No matter what it is, when it comes to what we expect from people, expect from ourselves... The bottom line in all of this is even those who deeply love us, I mean, really would never, ever, ever want to hurt us. They can err when it comes to what they ask of us with our time, let alone those who see this in people and use this unhealthy drive to knowingly take advantage of folks. The glory issue. However, if we glorify God first, what we'll probably see happen is a difference in in the way we see relationships. You must know the reason why it's worth putting God first is God will never abuse you like that. He can't. He has a character that will not permit him to take advantage of you. And this is why he commands us to live for his glory first and alone. That doesn't mean we don't value other things in life. It just means there's a first thing first. And that first thing begins to give us clarity in all the other things in life. When you do that, it is, I would say, guaranteed because God wants you to know his will for your life with his time. You will likely develop wise boundaries with time in relationships. You'll have discernment to sort that stuff out. You will know where extra time is needed and less is needed because God is, His wisdom is, is shaping your time. So glory, the pursuit of affirmation and approval ultimately from other people, that's what John talks about, and it's a challenge. I want to give you one other applicable example here. Some of us live for the glory of prestige and status in life. This is also what's going on in the, in the Gospel of John. These folks are, uh, certainly they're concerned about the approval of other people, but they're also concerned about their titles. They know that to be kicked out of the synagogue, if you're a Pharisee, to lose the synagogue means you lose your identity. That's how they saw it. This, is, this was their jam. And to lose that would be like losing your soul. And so for some of us, we live for the glory of prestige and status in life. And if you do, you're going to get in trouble with your time. That's not to say that prestige and status can't be a good thing. If it becomes a God thing, it becomes a problem. So maybe in your heart you believe you'll be accepted like by others because of your net worth. Or you'll be accepted because of the type of house you live in or the kind of car you drive or the way you look. You know, we live in a culture, it's funny, that's obsessed with denying the beauty of aging. I was talking to somebody last week about this. Looks matter in our world. Now, I'm not even against looks. I mean, I comb my hair and brush my teeth every day. I'm trying to keep that in order, right? But the point is like, there's, there's some weird things that start happening when we start to glorify these things at the expense of the way God has designed things. The older I'm getting, I'm realizing that it's really good to, to age. There's something so right about that. That's the way God designed it. But in a world where prestige and status matters, sometimes we're just trying to stave off the fact that the grave comes for all of us, right? Maybe you've, you've chosen uh, to find glory in what you drive, or maybe you've chosen to live for the glory of your career. For you, it's about the next workplace promotion, life title that screams to the world, you are somebody and you matter. Listen, if you're the person who ultimately lives for that, and we all can be tempted by these things in life, this is an us conversation here, then you likely know what I'm about to say. When you're driven by prestige and status, you will likely start glorifying those things. You will start spending your energy and your time trying to acquire those titles to accumulate whatever it is you feel is going to make you matter more. And when you get them, and I use the word when for a reason, Because I know a lot of you, and some of you are pretty driven people. You're in order. You'll probably get that stuff. What happens is if if that's what you glory in, you'll be happy for like three months. You'll get a title, and it'll look cool for three months. You'll get a new prestige, whatever it is, until you reorient your life around the the next promotion, the next whatever, fill in the blank, the next title, the next model of your car, the next house. What happens is glory becomes like a big leaking barrel. And that's what living for glory like this is, temporal glories. It's not God's glory in a permanent sense. It's sort of like you are, you are trying to fill up a barrel with a hole in the bottom of it. And that is exhausting because it doesn't matter how much you put into that barrel. It just keeps leaking out. And eventually you're going to fatigue. Eventually you'll get to the place where you can't fill that barrel anymore. Spiritually speaking, this is what we talk about being like a substitute form of glory. And so when we live for a glory that is not God's glory, it will deceive us into thinking we are living as we were meant to. That is why there's a busyness complex in our culture today. I think a lot of people think they're living as they are meant to, but what's happened is we are just aimlessly and in some senses fruitlessly running our lives into the ground because we're not pausing or stopping or reflecting. What Jesus says is that's called being spiritually blind when it comes to time anyways. Because a life that is glorifying something that isn't God, it isn't living. It might feel like living, but it isn't living. It will absolutely rob you of joy. And when it comes to time and glory, the more things you give glory to in your life, the more you must give them your time, which is not an infinite resource. So, again, we go back to what I said last week. This isn't about being more efficient. There is a cap to efficiency. At some point, there just is no more time. And I'm for efficiency. This is about being wise. Wisdom defines efficiency. So, last thing I want to say this morning how do we as people avoid this from happening? How do we sort of posture our lives in a way that that keep at least staves off these these raging horses right I want to answer this by introducing a truth that will sort of be a springboard for what we'll talk about over these next weeks the key to glorifying God in every moment of your life making the most of every moment in your life is being incredibly intentional in what you're already doing it's essentially inviting God uh, or receiving the invitation to be a part of God's time not inviting God into yours and that's the funny thing about a time series like this. It's, it probably sounds like I'm asking you to stop doing a bunch of stuff in order to start doing more stuff for God. And I guess to a certain degree that's true, but I don't want it to be true in the traditional way we tend to understand that from time in the calendar. I got six things going on this week, I gotta cut four in order to be able to do five this week. What I wanna say here is that God can lead us to initiatives, new initiatives in life. The challenge of making the most t- of every opportunity is not necessarily about doing new stuff or more stuff it's more a call to make sure we're faithfully glorifying God and everything we're already doing Amen. before we start cutting stuff off or adding stuff the question is worth asking am I honoring God and what I'm doing now because if I'm not we'll likely just take that attitude and apply it to what we're getting rid of or adding this is a call to avoid moving through life carelessly jumping at whatever opportunities come our way or this is very common today too, automatically conditioning ourselves to say no when God puts opportunities in our path because we've tricked ourselves into thinking our time priorities are calcified. They're like petrified stone. Immo- immovable, can't change this. And so what happens is, is we're, we're doing stuff maybe we shouldn't be doing and then we're actually not doing stuff God wants us to do. This is a call to bring glory to God in everything we choose to do or not to do. And I'll tell you this time truth can only be applied once you've taken a good look at your life through the, the, the lens of Jesus' wisdom. Because when you do that, God will speak to you. He will show you if you're confused about living in this, this perpetual state of fruitless busyness. He'll show you that because he cares about you. He will show you if you're devoting enough time to prayer, if you're speaking to him. He will show you if you're in the word enough. He will show you how you see and value the men and women whom God has put in your life and your neighbors who are far from God. He will show you that, I promise he wants you to know this stuff. He will show you if you're spending too much time in the office or not enough. He'll show you if you've made it a priority to make disciples in your home and on your block. If You're raising your kids and investing in people in the way God is leading you to. He will show you if you are loving your spouse, your family, and your kids well. He will show you if you are living intentionally for him and what you're already doing. But you have to, this is maybe with a the, the chicken and egg dialogue comes into play. Say, which one came first? You have to make time for that. You've got to stop at some moment in time and say, I'm going to start asking you, God, about these things in my life. You see, this idea that we've talked about today on glory is meant to be somewhat of a foundational truth, a springboard, we might even say, for, for learning how to live with it in every area of our lives. We want to glorify God in our time. That's how we make the most of every moment. And hopefully you have a better or a deeper understanding of what it means to honor God, to glorify God, to put him at the center. Because doing so will give you a clearer understanding of how to live with God at the center of your time. If God's at the center of your life, he'll be at the center of your time. And over these next weeks, I want to apply this this teaching to some main areas of our lives. The big three are family, work, and neighbors. How we love those in our lives. How we balance work the workplace. And of course, how we care for our neighbors. By neighbors, that's sort of a, a term the Bible uses, how we, how we care for those who don't even know Jesus yet or those who have great need in life, how we bless folks who really are at a place where they have, they have need to be blessed. If you don't have time for these things, we likely will sabotage these great gifts God has given us. And so, like last week, I want you to meditate on this this week, especially as we move to the communion table. If you take one thing away from this message today, let it be this. God put us on this earth, like our existence, we're here. Right? Our chief existence, I like to say. in life is not trying to get to the place where we include God in our time. That's, I think, the problem. I think what happens is, is we say, you know, I got this going on, I got that going on, I don't know what's going on in life, I'm a little confused, you know, how do I squeeze a little God up into my life? That is not what God is saying. The Christian has a different, a different invitation they have to meditate on. We have to get to the place where we learn to accept the invitation to be included in God's time. What God is saying is, hey, put that yoke down, it's a little heavy, come rest in me for a little bit. And let's talk about your life. That's very different than us actually saying, man, I'm super busy and I've got to figure out four more hours to have a devotional today. Or, how am I going to lead my neighbors to Jesus? Or I heard there's a need on the setup team. Who, how am I going to do that? You're not going to do that. You're not going to take a next step for Jesus in whatever way it is if we're trying to cram God into our lives. However, we will likely see great and powerful steps when we try to, to take our lives and hand them back to the Lord. And that is what living for God's glory is about. It's not having a faith built on proximity to God in everything we do. He's around. It's having a faith built on a real intimacy with God. He is in us. He is in everything we do. And we see life through his eyes. You see, when you put God's kingdom first, that will shape what you do. It will shape the way you see your family. It'll shape the way you see your workplace. It'll shape the way you see your social circles. When you live for the kingdom first, it will stabilize life. Because unlike, here's the key, unlike the constantly changing expectations of the seasons of life, they are always changing. They're like the ocean, up, down, left, right, windy, calm. The seasons and expectations of life are never, ever the same. However, God's expectation of us during those seasons, it also doesn't change. No matter what the season is, the expectation God has for us, the wisdom of God becomes a rudder to steer us through those times. So it becomes a question of what, what do we want to pursue, the moving sea or the unchangeable nature of a God who really wants to understand, help us understand how to navigate the sea. That's what it means to have God present in your time, to have him really driving time. So as we move to response time and communi- the communion table, remember, we're about halfway through our 1,440 minutes today, right? We all have about 1,200-something minutes to go when we leave this place. I hope you'll spend a few of those eating with us remember, time, 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 time is not the issue. The issue is what we choose to glorify with those minutes. And so as we close this morning and reflect on the, the goodness of Jesus Christ through the communion table, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your time? And what do you intend to do about it as we leave this place this morning? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, for some pretty great truth. First, from your apostle Paul who who exemplifies, not in perfect ways, but in very human ways. He exemplifies what it means to be accomplished, successful, to really have a lot of things in order in life, but to have you most in order. What is so awesome about his life is he really does make you first. And because of that, you bless him in ways that are powerful. And so I pray, Lord, when the Apostle Paul tells us to make the most of our moments, that we would truly truly take that to heart. And I pray that when Jesus tells us that we should seek his kingdom first, that we should really look to the things of heaven in order for them to define the things of earth, I pray that we would not take that truth lightly. And I pray as we move to this time in communion, God, that you would really help us to, to see, sense, and understand that. This is one of the greatest examples we have of a heavenly reality being made flesh and blood on earth. Your understanding, God, your desire to redeem us in Jesus is because of him coming to the earth and making space for your kingdom and our lives. So I pray that would be the drive as we move into this time we have in communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.